Well, it's so good to see you, and He is risen. He is risen. Indeed, and I trust that you're not just saying that, but that you are wholeheartedly placing your feet on that as the only hope for your salvation, and that is the resurrection of Christ. You know, the past week, what we've done is we've kind of looked at a week in the life of Jesus Christ. Recalling last Sunday, I was joined by some fellow pastors here from our church, and we walked through through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, all the way to Friday, and kind of showed you historically, from a data point of view, the evidence for the life of Christ and the time and space reality that, that exists, and that he's real, and that these events occurred, and that the crucifixion was an actual event. In fact, we were left with this implication that because he actually died, we can actually live. We came together Friday night. We looked more intensely at the three hours, the final three hours of Christ on the cross. Again, looking at some of the medical data from that, some of the historical data, as well as the spiritual implication. This morning we come to Easter, and so we're going to continue in this idea of a week in the life of Jesus, what his final days mean to ours. And so this morning to do that, I want to turn to the greatest resurrection chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But before you go ahead and turn there, before I get there, I want to kind of walk you through a timeline of the resurrection, okay? So you can locate 1 Corinthians 15, put a finger there, we'll arrive there eventually. I want to take the long way home, though. I want to walk you through what I think is more historical, evidential data for what we celebrate today. To kind of give you, again a chronology of what happened in the week, the last week of Christ's life. Now, be aware the Bible doesn't give us times when it comes to Easter Sunday morning. It gives us specific people and places and events, and, and those are helpful. In fact, they're, they're, they're the kind of markers and tags that lean in. They're clues that show us this is real. But we're able to put at least some guesstimates to time frames regarding the resurrection and the events that followed. So I've tried to put together what I think is a chronological timeline involving actual times. I want to remind you, these are just my estimates, but they're based on true historical data about the events that occurred. I'm going to tell you what I think is maybe a best guess time frame. And this is not just my work. I appreciate the work of an author. He wrote the book, The Easter Answer, in which he kind of pieces together the chronological time frame as well. I've used that and some other resources. Here's kind of how I think the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, unfolded. I think sometime between midnight and about 3 a.m., and I'll show you these slides, and you'll see the scriptures there. You might want to get a snapshot of these to kind of look them up later. I've pieced together different uh, uh, comparative gospels to make sure we're kind of in the right time frame. I believe sometime between midnight and 3 a.m., an earthquake occurred. The angel appeared, rolled the stone away, and Jesus walked out. By the way, the stone was not removed so Christ could walk out. It was removed so others could walk in and see that he was not there, okay? Now, you say, why midnight or later? Well, we know that he was in the grave three days and three nights. And in the Jewish culture, the Jewish time culture, uh, a part of a day would count as a day. And so I think he was in there before Friday, um, uh, excuse me, part of Friday, part of Saturday, and by midnight or later on this first day of the week, he was in there for that part of the day as well. So it could have been 12.01. The earthquake occurs. It's part of the day. It counts, right? It's kind of the way we look at it, but it's three days. 
The angel comes, rolls the stone away, the guards are paralyzed, and sometime between maybe three and five, the women come to the tomb. They're coming with uh, spices, they're coming with oils, they're going to anoint the body. They're thinking he's still dead, but they find what the angel did, rolled the stone away. They find the guards are paralyzed, and so several women encounter an empty tomb. Uh, One of these women is Mary Magdalene. Somewhere in this time frame, I believe, she encounters Jesus personally. She recognizes him, they have a conversation. So at the end of all this, they run back to tell the disciples, probably in the four to five hour-ish range. Maybe they wake him up, maybe they're already up, we don't know, but they don't believe the report of the women. And so sometime around 5 a.m., Peter and John run back to the tomb where the women just were. And they realize, wow, it is empty, and, and they begin to have conversations. And I think my opinion is that for most of the morning, maybe up until the afternoon, there's what I call he said, she said conversations. Well, when I went, it was this way. Well, when I went, it was this way. Well, I can't believe you're telling the truth here. What about this? And what did he say? And they're just back and forth. And you can relate to that, right? And so this is going on because the Bible seems to say that sometime in the afternoon, Jesus is actually on the road to a town called Emmaus. So it must be that after the early morning appearances to at least Mary Magdalene and the disciples talking, he leaves the initial vicinity of Jerusalem and he leaves them to kind of discuss what they saw. And I think somewhere between noon and about five, he's walking on this road to a village that's about seven miles away. Now, on this walk with a man named Cleopas and then Cleopas' friend, they're just depressed and discouraged. They don't know that Christ is walking with them, and he unfolds for them through the Old Testament who he really is and how all these things that occurred occurred because of the scriptures and God's fulfilling his promises. And they get to Emmaus, and they're going to sit down to eat, which is why I think it's before about five or six. In the Jewish culture, that began kind of the evening hour, about 6 o'clock. I think they were set down to eat probably around that time. As they sit down to eat, he vanishes just like that. And then their eyes are open and they realize, wow, we were walking with the risen Lord. Well, it appears that they downed their food in a hurry or got a bag to go. And they rushed back to Jerusalem because the Bible says next that they, had, they went to see the eleven who were in this room, but Jesus was not there, and neither was Thomas. So it's really about 10 of them. So I think somewhere they arrived back around 6 o'clock-ish. We know that the Bible says that Jesus appeared to these disciples in the evening. So we're going to take that to maybe mean 8-ish, 9-ish. We know that's in that 6 to 9 kind of time frame. For them to get back to 7 miles from Emmaus, took some time, they probably hurried. So my best guesstimate is that probably between 6 and 8, They're in this room with these 10 disciples. Thomas is missing. And suddenly they're talking about what they saw. They're intermixing with the he said, she said conversation. And guess who shows up? Jesus. And man, there it really gets exciting. And what I find so striking is that what's recorded about their conversation, their first conversation with the risen Lord is his commissioning of them to be sent just as he was sent. Breathes the Holy Spirit on them. Eight days later, Thomas does see Jesus. Sees his, the, the piercings in his body. He believes. And what occurs over the next 40 days is, is over 500 people see the Lord Jesus Christ and verify that what they reported on day one and what many of them saw on day one is actually true. 
So this is kind of a timeline, a chronological timeline of the very first Resurrection Sunday from about midnight, 12.01, maybe 2 in the morning, all the way to that evening when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples. That was the verifiable. That, that, those were the evidential clues in time and space that we're not just building our hope on a myth. We stand on verified historical evidence that says Jesus is alive. Now, understand this as well. Those 10 or 11 disciples, along with the other ones who in the wake of their ministry followed the Lord because he was alive, because he was alive. the book of Acts records that, that they began to spread out all over the known world. And over the next 30 to 60 years, the Bible records that they turned the world upside down. That's a hyperbolic term for meaning this. The gospel went everywhere. The gospel of whom? Jesus Christ. It was the fact that he had risen. And so the news had to be shared. And sure enough, over about 30 to 60 years, that's what happened. But here's what's quite intriguing. All of those 11, in the process of laying their life down to see the gospel spread, this great news that the king had come and died and risen, every one of those men, plus more, gave their life for that very news. It ends in Revelation with John being exiled on the island of Patmos where he was just left to die. And you can count backwards from there. All 11 were killed for their commitment to spreading the news that Jesus was risen. Why would they do that? Here's why. Because they knew that if the worst thing that happened to them, humanly speaking, was death, big deal. Jesus arose, I'll rise too. That's what's happening here. And so I think one of the implications we draw from the historical timeline of Jesus and the historical aspect of his resurrection as we follow it in the first day and we follow what happened in the following years, here's the, one of the primary implications we get, that because he actually arose, you can actually live without worrying about dying. That's what the first 11 did. That's what the disciples did in the wake of their ministry. They just didn't worry about dying. Why? Because they knew Christ had risen, and so he was the first fruits, and we will rise as well. Now, I don't just tell you that from the basis of a story with all of the references from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. I tell you that because this is precisely what Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You're there by now, right? 1 Corinthians 15. I want to show you how he says this in probably one of the most obscure resurrection verses that I've ever preached from. In fact, I doubt if you've even considered this verse to be a resurrection verse. But Paul makes this point, and I want to take this verse, it's verse 32, and I want to drop this verse in the pebble of our hearts this morning, and I want to watch it ripple out. So we'll cover other verses, we'll look at other sections here within this chapter, but I want to start in verse 32 and show you a question Paul asks, which really is just echoing what we see in the lives of the apostles and disciples based on the chronological evidential timeline of the resurrection. Look what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 32. In this obscure resurrection verse, it's the last of four questions he asks. But here's how this one's, he says this. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, in other words, if I look at things just from a horizontal perspective, if I'm just analyzing this situation from the here and now, if I don't bring in any other factors, what does it gain me 
if I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Now, he's speaking there of a city in which he ministered and the volatility that occurred there, the difficulty he had. He may be speaking metaphorically. He may be speaking physically. But he's talking about why would he endanger himself, right? Why do you fight with beasts at Ephesus if all there is is the here and now? You tracking with me? This is his point. He says, if the dead are not raised, there's the resurrection, right? If there is no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, we should not fight with beasts. We should do this instead. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Interesting, isn't it? Don't expend yourself. Don't embrace inherent danger. Don't accept necessary risk. No. Draw a circle. And be involved in self-consumption. And that's what he means by eat and drink. Now, now, this is probably a quote from one of their cultural poets. And Paul was using this not only to show his point, but also to, to indicate that he was kind of aware of their culture. And, and some commentators debate on this. Is this a reference to like a lavish lifestyle? The author of this poet, this poetic uh, quote may have been an Epicurean, they say. So someone who enjoyed like a a very lavish, rich lifestyle, centered all on themselves. Some think it may be a reference to a party lifestyle, like just a complete pagan and erotic and just out far flung on the edges of immorality. And and some think it may just mean simply that they're going to be modest and just going to eat and drink and they're not going to worry about anybody else. I don't know where the end of the spectrum is of this quote. I don't know really what Paul's intent was completely. I think the point is not what is the extreme of the spectrum. What Paul is saying is this. If there's no resurrection, don't worry about anybody else. Just take care of your own food and your own drink. Just take care of your own circle. Because after all, when you die, it's over. What does it matter? That's kind of the point of this. So I'm not really worried about the extreme of it. I'm just saying the point is it it really doesn't... uh, logically makes sense to be a selfless, courageous, risk-embracing person if all there is is the here and now, humanly speaking. Just look to yourself. Take care of your own food and drink. Make sure you survive for one more day. Paul kind of goes along with this thought in other parts of this chapter. The idea that, hey, what if there is no resurrection? Have you logically thought about what you should do if Christ really didn't rise from the dead? He kind of addresses this several times. Let me show you some verses. In the same chapter, the greatest resurrection chapter, look about verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, and watch these next statements of result, if that were true. He says, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. He says, we're found to be misrepresenting God, or one translation says, false witnesses. He says, if the dead are not raised, in verse 16, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 17 says, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Like, hey, that whole thing about forgiveness, that's a joke. If Christ hasn't raised, he's laying out for us what is the reality of that life. He summarizes in verse 19 by saying this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. Do you see that phrase? I would draw a circle around it and draw a line over to the phrase, humanly speaking, in verse 32, where we started. That's the same idea. If humanly speaking, if horizontal perspective, if in this life only, if just the here and now, we say, hey, there's no resurrection of the dead. Christ didn't rise. 
He says this, we are of all people most to be, say it church with me, pitied. You see, our culture needs to hear this, that we should not commend philanthropists who are atheists for giving away their money. We should scold them. That's pitiful that you waste your money on people that won't matter in the end. You should hoard it and save it for yourself. You should consume it upon your own life. You should eat and drink. Draw the circle around yourself because in the end, tomorrow you die. What does it matter? You see, our culture is illogical in many ways. We deny the resurrection, or they deny the resurrection. Act like God doesn't exist, and yet we want to live like he does. <laughs> At least in some of their ways, right? Paul here says, let's just be honest. If, if, if we only have hope in this life, and we say there's no resurrection, we're really to be pitied. We're not to be commended These are amazing, logical conclusions that, that Paul is saying. Go ahead, if you deny the resurrection, and just live selfishly. Draw the circle around your own life and focus on that. But the fact is, there is a resurrection. And I don't say that to you as something I only believe. I say that to you as something that Historical evidence, time and space data point to. And Paul recognizes this by his word in verse 20. Look at this, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. You see that? He doesn't say, but I believe Christ has been raised from the dead. He doesn't say, but it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. He says, in fact. Why would he use the word fact here? Well, I think one of the reasons is this. One of his close friends was Peter. And based on the timeline, who ran to the tomb when the women said, hey, it's empty, and the head pieces folded neatly? Man, there's an angel there. The guards are paralyzed. Like, dude, he's alive. Who ran to the tomb? It was Peter. Paul had firsthand evidence, eyewitness reports that Jesus had risen, that he was alive. He knew those women. He knew some of those other disciples like James. He engaged with them in the book of Acts several times. Paul witnessed Christ personally on the road to Damascus. He heard him audibly. So Paul here says, by the way, this is not just my belief. This is, the, this is where the clues lead us. This is where the time and space data, the historical evidence points us. That in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So what is the automatic implication? I'll say it again to you. That we actually can get outside of our circle of selfishness that we can live outside of our fear and, and our comfort and we can live courageously. We can in, embrace danger. We can uh, gather our hands around inherent risk. Why? Here's the reasoning. Because if, humanly speaking, the worst thing they do to us is kill us, big deal. We're going to rise again. Because he rose. You see how all the logic is pretty airtight? Paul's making this strong case. Guys, the resurrection's true. So let go of trying to own your life and live it for Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? What have you got to worry about? That they're going to kill you? It's just your body. He'll raise it again at the last day. And if you're not in your body, you'll be with the Lord if you're a believer. So I know that's hard to hear in our culture. We are born self-protectionists. I realize that. 
But have you ever thought about Paul's words throughout the New Testament? For me to live as Christ, to die is gain? Paul understood something. The resurrection, the reality that that's rooted in, guarantees us that when this life is over, our body, our soul will be in heaven with Christ, and on the last day, he'll raise our body up. So what have we to worry about? Let's live without any fear of death. Back to our text here. I think this is what he does in all of his four questions, by the way, beginning in verse 29. I only read you the last one in verse 32. Remember that as we began? It's the final of four questions. It begins in verse 29. Let me show these to you because they're going to show you that Paul's point is, hey, man, get outside of the selfish circle and let's live with risk and let's live in danger. Let's be okay with the things that we're not sure we understand because Christ has risen. He'll raise us too. He begins in verse 29 with this statement about being baptized for the dead, this question where he says, this is why people are baptized for the dead. Because they know there's a resurrection. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, when you read that, you may think, oh, Todd, does that mean we should do that? Paul here is not affirming or suggesting or even commanding that. He's admitting it happens. Let me prove it to you. Look at your verse. In verse 29, there are no personal pronouns. But you see the word people mentioned twice, don't you? He's actually pointing here saying, hey, in our culture, this happens. In that Corinthian culture, people were being baptized for the dead. He's not saying it was right or that he did it. He's saying, this is what some people do. This is the length they go to because they know there's a resurrection. But in verse 30, what does he use in the third word there in the ESV? He says, why are we in danger? He's now talking about himself. I think in verse 29, Paul's pointing to those who are incorrectly and unbiblically thinking they can make a difference in someone else's life by being baptized for them. He's simply saying... That's not right, but it's happening. Why? Because people believe in resurrection, right? They're going to great lengths because they know there's a resurrection. What do we do because of the resurrection? Verse 30, we're in danger every hour. Wow. And he says here in verse 31 that he actually dies every day. And that's when he goes to this fourth question. He says, what is it if I, if I fight with beasts at Ephesus if it's only for a here and now perspective? Four questions that Paul says this. People go to great lengths because they know there's a resurrection. He says for himself personally, he's in danger every hour and he's willing to put his life on the line every day. I think that's what the phrase I die daily means. Now, I kind of heard for years that phrase meant that, you know, you should die spiritually to yourself. I think there's some truth to that application, but in its most contextual, honest form, it simply means that when Paul woke up every morning, he said, if today's the day, they kill me, I'm okay with that. Because Christ arose, I'll rise too. In other words, the resurrection of Christ enabled him to lay his life on the line every day. It enabled him to embrace danger every hour, to fight beasts at Ephesus. I've just been so motivated by this whole passage in which Paul here roots all of his risky living, uh, all of his risky business, You'll get that, right? <laughs> Paul roots every bit of that, not in some kind of self-mustered up, I gotta be better courage, not in some type of like, let's do it for the sake of humanity kind of uh, theory. He says, man, because Christ arose, the worst thing that can happen to me on a human level is they take my body and destroy it. Big deal, Christ will raise it. Let's go get them. 
And I love his adventurous aggressiveness. I love his willingness just to, to kind of shed any kind of selfishness and fearfulness and live fearlessly, courageously for the gospel because of the resurrection. This is why I say to you, you can live without worrying about dying. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's natural. But I'm saying because of the resurrection, you can live embracing inherent risk for God's name, facing inherent danger because of your faith. And you can know this, that if the worst thing from their perspective happens to you, they kill you. So what? You'll be raised again. At the last day, God has promised because of Christ's resurrection to raise your body as well. There is more to this life. So let's live this life like that's actually true. Let's quit just eating and drinking and preoccupying ourselves with self-consumption. Let's live for the sake of those who've yet to hear of, the, of God's name. In fact, this is how he closes this paragraph. Look at this. This is an interesting uh, way to end this. He says, yes, I fought beasts at Ephesus. There's more to this life than, than just the here and now. So he says in verse 33, do not be deceived. See that? Bad company ruins good morals. If you're listening and around people who just say, hey, it's all about the here and now. It's just you and what you've got. He says, that's going to affect you. He says in verse 34, to wake up from your drunken stupor, which is what selfish living is. It's a drunken stupor. He says, wake up from this and do not go on sinning, which I think we can equate that to just simply having a circle in which it's all about self-consumption, eat and drinking, tomorrow we die. That's sinning. He says, some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. What Paul is doing here, he's saying, guys, do you realize that you can actually get outside of your boundaries? You can leave your borders for the sake of God's name. Those who've never heard him, make sure they know. And that will involve risk. That will involve danger. You'll fight with your own beast. But it's well worth it. Because what's the worst thing they can do to you? Say it with me. Kill you. Is that the end? No. Your soul is immediately in the presence of God. And on the last day, he'll raise your body. What kind of threat is death to a Christian? <laughs> I admit to you, this is hard to process. It's hard to preach. We are just survivalists. And in this American culture, man, we are protectionists. Not just of our own breath and life, but of everything around us. I admit that. But there is a day coming when God will raise the dead because he raised his son. This is what he discusses in other parts of this chapter. Again, back to our text. Let me show you some verses that just show us proof positively that resurrection is guaranteed. Look about verse 21 and 22, would you? Beginning in verse 20, he says that Christ is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep or the, a euphemism for died. So Christ has been raised, so those who follow him will be raised. Verse 21, as by a man came death, so by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. He's just confirming and affirming the existence, the validity, the veracity of a resurrection. I like verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. I look at this audience. All of you are, are bearing that image right now, okay? 
You're bearing the image of the man of dust. Human, fleshly, literal bodies. This is a room full of dust, okay? And just as sure as I'm looking at that, and you're looking at me, and we're seeing that, look what he says next. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Resurrection is verified and positive. This is not the end. God, on the last day, will raise up the bodies of those who have trusted in his son. So again, I say to you, knowing that truth, how do we live our life now? We should not live it selfishly, fearfully, risk-free, danger-free. No, we should not. A thousand times no. Embrace the danger. Welcome the inherent risk of following Christ and taking his name to those who've yet to hear it. The worst thing that can happen to you in their eyes is that they kill you for it. <laughs> and that's their greatest threat. And God's promise that if they do that, fear not, he'll raise you on the last day. Man, don't you love what's rooted in the resurrection? It's that we can live riskily. That's right. Your American ears just heard your pastor say that. You can give your life away for something far greater than it and to someone far more valuable than it. You can live your life and give your life away for Jesus and to Jesus. Why? Because of the resurrection. Man, Knowing this text has made me ask myself, well, how do I do that? How do I live riskily? Because Paul in this text doesn't really list a lot of the hows. He doesn't give you like a one, two, three kind of itemized statement. He just kind of really motivates us to get outside of our eat and drink preoccupied circle of self-consumption and live in light of eternity and for God and for those who don't know God. By the way, this is not presumption or arrogance. Some of you may be thinking now, well, it sounds like you're just saying, Todd, you can just take on death and go to the 30,000-foot airplane, jump out and say, hey, I'm not saying that, okay? I've been using the word necessary risk, inherent danger. So we don't, we're not talking presumption or arrogance, but I would tell you what we are talking. We are talking about Holy Spirit power to meet challenges that you think are impossible that are filled with danger and risk. You see, I think that the call to live this way is, is kind of wrapped up in a Trinitarian equation that though it's not spelled out in this text explicitly, I think it's really kind of implied in this way. And I kind of wrote it out for you here on this, on this screen. Watch this. If you put these things together and add them up, you will, you will arrive at a risky lifestyle, which will be good. You'll embrace danger for God's name. It's Jesus' resurrection evidence the time and space markers and tags that this really happened. So evidence plus Holy Spirit energy. And by the way, in the New Testament, the word energy is often used to describe how the Holy Spirit works in us. You can use the word power, that's fine. Energy is a biblical word as well. So evidence of Jesus, energy from the Holy Spirit, and then that is in light of God's eternal glory and kingdom. 
So you have God the Father's eternal glory and kingdom, God the Son's resurrection evidence, and God the Holy Spirit's energy, and suddenly you mix all that together in the life of a believer, what do you have? You have someone willing to take on the risk, embrace the danger. And without that Trinitarian call, no one's going to live dangerously for God's name. But when you get the Trinitarian God beckoning your name and calling you to lay your life down for his, when it's the Trinitarian call, you will embrace it. Now, how will that look? Let me share with you just a few ways that you can live riskily. I'll land the plane here and just want to kind of share with you some things you might do in order to kind of live riskily. Some of these will be Todd's tips kind of stuff. And some will actually be commands from the Bible. But I can assure you this. I doubt if any of these will, be, will lead you anywhere close to your death. Okay? So as you think about the timeline of the Easter morning and then the following 30, 60 years, all 11 of them died. Uh, you're probably not looking at anything like that. You may be. I don't know. But the truth is, we have a very safe environment and culture currently, don't we? We don't really face a lot of risk, to be frank with you. But there is some. Here's some ways that I want to encourage you to think about living in light of the resurrection, how to live riskily that finds its roots in this uh, event that's historically verified. First of all, I would strongly urge many of you to consider where you were living and to live somewhere intentionally and strategically, either short-term or long-term, for the sake of making disciples of all nations. And I'm not saying that living in Ankeny or metro area here, Grimes, Huxley, Urbandale is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But I am saying that some of you who are teachers, doctors, um, engineers, you know, we always, we always think sometimes, we often think that sometimes you have to be a missionary or a pastor to kind of go somewhere far away. But you know, the world is flattening, the globe is shrinking, and often there's engineers and medical professionals who are living in faraway places, not just to make a living, but to make disciples. It's a less burden on the Christian community as far as support goes. They're able to fund their life through their trade or their occupation, yet they're living in a place where there are very few believers, and it's a very strategic way to live on the planet. Should everyone do that? No. There's not a verse in the Bible that says you have to do that. But it is one way to think about embracing risk, isn't it? I especially here want to talk to those who are in college, maybe late high schoolers, maybe even some young junior hires perhaps. You think about your life coming up. The culture you're in wants to kind of blanket you with the American dream. Go to college and get massively in debt. Find someone you'll marry. Get in a very safe neighborhood. Build a house with a fence and a two-car garage and settle down. And I want to challenge that for a moment. I don't know if that's sinful because it's all about motives, but I want to challenge that. What if before you get yourself tied down to a job in a suburb and a spouse and some kids, and by the way, let's just be honest, that's kind of what kind of makes our feet stick in an area, isn't it? You buy a home and then you have kids and suddenly it's just not as easy logistically to move. That's just the honest truth. That's just real life. Before any of that happens, what if you begin to think about where could I live and what could I do that would most impact the kingdom? Now, my guess is right now, some parents are like, Todd, shut up. <laughs> Your kids are with you, and you're like, you're making my kid move to China. You're causing my kid to want to go to Liberia. No, I'm not. 
I'm not causing anything. I'm not near that powerful. I'm just bringing some truth to your family's attention that could it be that your child, or let's speak to empty nesters. Your children are gone, and you've got a little more discretionary income, hopefully. Maybe you've got some more discretionary time. Maybe you could live somewhere different than where there are already a lot of believers. There's a good need here. I'm not denying any of that. But there is an access issue in many parts of the world. And could it be that God would have you take your trade and live somewhere strategically and intentionally for his name's sake? You say, well, Todd, I don't know, I don't know if I can have that danger. They, they might hurt me or kill me. Or I don't know how. It, yeah, there's, there's risk in that 100%. You're right. Good call. That's dangerous. Do it anyway. Think through it. Be discerning. Don't be unwise. But don't shrink back. Does that make sense? That's just one way to live riskily. You live strategically, intentionally somewhere where there's less believers for the sake of not just making a living, but making disciples. Here's another way. Invest your time and money sacrificially and regularly. See, oftentimes we'll, uh, people will give an amount of money when they're feeling guilty or they give it sporadically. But if you really want to make a difference, give it regularly and give it sacrificially. And see, right now you're thinking, well, I, I don't know if I can afford that. That's risky. Totally. Yeah, you're right. Good call. Again, you guys are great listeners. Like, that's, that could be dangerous. My 401K and my 403B and I get all that. You're right. I'm not saying be unwise. I'm not saying don't plan ahead. Proverbs, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Solomon, calls us to do exactly that. Amen. Where the line is between that and hoarding, you've got to figure it out with God. I'm just saying, when the Lord calls you to give, is your first thought, well, what if? Maybe challenge that and live riskily. Live, give sacrificially and give regularly, not just when there's a little extra around. You see, I, I believe this personally, and I believe the Bible calls us to this, that there's no better way to give than to and through the local church. For instance, I would probably challenge anybody here kind of Easter challenge perhaps, I don't know, that you could not give singularly, singularly in a way that impacts as much as you can if you can give collectively. When you give to and through your local church, we're impacting local ministries that deal with homelessness, adoption issues, foster care, helping children at certain camps locally, uh, shelters that give away food and clothing, uh, uh, pregnancy centers, sex trafficking organizations. We also help six, six seminaries as they train men in understanding the gospel and being preachers and women and missionaries and just uh, a, a, a host of people in really good theological training. There's a number of things that your gifts do, both internationally and locally, that if you on a single level said, I'm just going to try to give a check to all those things, it would dry you up probably. But when you just, in a sacrificial and regular way, give to and through your church, you impact a host of places and people. That's one reason I, I, I think it's very wise, and at times risky and sacrificial, to give on a regular basis. But it's so important that we just embrace that risk. Are you doing that? That's just one of the ways that you could live riskily. Here's another way. Tell someone about Jesus weekly. Now, everybody Relax because your heart just started beating faster. You're like, you mean like a conversation, Todd? <laughs> yeah, I might even mean this. You go and knock on a door. 
Someone said to me recently, Todd, people don't knock on doors these days. I was like, you're exactly right. Like, scary. Yeah, it's really scary. I was like, yeah, can you do it tomorrow? Like, <laughs> here's, the, here's a community welcome bag. Just go knock on your neighbor's door. They're not going to shoot you, and if they do, big deal. It's just death, right? <laughs> you're going to be raised. Take a little risk. Knock on your neighbor's door. I'm being a little facetious there, okay? But you see how, our, you see how even the Christian culture... In the book of Acts, it was common to have conversations with people about Jesus. And we act like we're offending someone's space. I want you to be polite. I want you to be friendly. I don't want you to be weird, okay? Just be normal. But at the same time, be bold. And when the door opens, just bring it up. Talk about it. You know, we talk about what we love. You know that, right? I don't have a problem talking about sports to folks that I'm good friends with because I, I really like sports. I think it's odd that in the church we think it's so hard to talk about Jesus but we can talk about everything else to everybody. That's just odd to me and I don't want to be in that camp. I want to be the person that's, you know what, I want to be polite and friendly but man, Jesus is a treasure and when the door opens and the time is right, I want to do what we can to just have that conversation and so I think it's wise even sometimes just to kind of put some time frames around it. The Bible doesn't say you have to tell someone every week about Jesus. It doesn't say that. But I found that when I don't put a time frame around some aspirations, I never do them. Are you that way? I'll do it tomorrow. It's only been a few days. It's really been like six months, you know? So I just kind of say, could I at least once a week just tell somebody how much Jesus means to me, how precious, how great he is? And he gets over a taco at Chipotle. Maybe it's standing in the yard while someone's mowing and they're walking. I don't know. It could be anyway. But would you just take a risk and be bold? Would you em em embrace some inherent danger of, of what folks think of you and just talk about your Savior? Yeah, it's going to take some boldness. That's the whole point. Here's another way. Number four, get baptized promptly and obedient. This is not a Todd's tip. This is God's command, okay? But I'm amazed how many folks in, in our American culture say, well, I'm a Christian, but I, I really don't want to get wet in public. <laughs> okay, and I'm not trying to laugh at you if you're that way. I'm just trying to bring something to your attention. The last thing you should be afraid of is getting wet in public. You're actually showing people that you're following Christ. If there's going to be any ridicule, let them ridicule you for that. Who cares what you look like when you're wet? What your hair might look like? <laughs> we'll be modest. We'll make this as safe as we can in one sense. But Christ calls us to publicly be immersed in water as he was to show and to testify that he is our master and that we are identifying with his church. So I just want to call anyone here who's been kind of hedging on this baptism thing. Get baptized promptly and obediently. You say, well, Todd, that seems like it's, yeah, it might take some boldness. Go for it. And again, somewhat facetiously, if the worst thing happens and you get stuck to the bottom of that tank and you drown, it's just death. He'll raise you on the last day, okay? I'm kidding you. I'm better than that. I won't drown you, I promise. But I'm just saying we have some amazing fears and risks that we bring up on all kinds of topics, don't we? When really, we just need to face the fact that we just need some boldness. Take some risk. And I think, personally, these aren't even that risky. There are people in other parts of the world who, if they get baptized, a death threat is on their life. We have partners in parts of the globe 
where when this happens publicly, it's, it's pretty much a sentence, a death sentence for them, literally, physically. And we worry about what it will look like when we're wet. And I'm sorry if I'm coming at you strong this morning. Well, I'm not really sorry. I'm coming at you strong this morning. I just tend to think this. When Paul said he faces danger every hour for those who don't know God's name, he's, he dies daily, what are we complaining about? Man, the resurrection should compel us and propel us to embracing risk and inherent danger because God is worth it. Here's the last way you can live riskily. Number five, trust Christ for salvation exclusively. Now, my guess is, as I just read that to you, most of your brains thought this. You thought, there's no risk in that. I mean, you're telling me that it's risky to, to get saved? To, like, trust Christ? Like, Todd, that's... All I got to do is like pray a prayer. All I got to do is fill a card out. All I got to do is raise a hand. How is that risky? Well, I think you've bought the American version of getting saved. Because the Bible says, the New Testament says, that anyone who follows Christ must take up his cross and follow Jesus. And what is the cross a symbol of? Death. So let me just give you a New Testament gospel-centered invitation to following Christ. It will cost you something. I know it's 2019, but I'm preaching like it's 1919. I'm not going to sit here and stand, or stand here and tell you, you know what, it's, it's no big deal, it's easy. I'm here to tell you this morning that actually trusting Christ for salvation exclusively, turning from sin and repenting, knowing that you have no ability to save yourself, that all of your righteousness comes from Christ who hung on a cross to pay for your sin, who was raised from the dead to show that God was satisfied with that sacrifice. Every bit of any worth or value comes from that. Embracing that, it actually might, it could cost you something. Your family might think, hey, he's pretty fanatical. Like, he doesn't think you can ever do anything good to get to heaven. That's exactly what I think, yeah. He thinks that, that, man, without God, you would have stayed lost and been rebellious. That's exactly what I think. Yeah, that it was God, holy and solely, who rescued me from the grip of sin and who saved my soul by his grace and that there's nothing good within me and it was the powerful hand of God who saved us. That's exactly what I believe. Yes, folks will look at you kind of funny. It could cost you some friends. Who's like, you go to that church? You can't play golf anymore? Now, I don't know if that's a cost, but I'm just kind of speaking our American language here. There could be some cost to following Christ, but here's what you need to ask yourself as I land this plane. It's not what those who are around you think of you that should concern you. It's not humanly speaking, in this life only, in the here and now, that should grab your attention. What should cause you greater concern, the greater risk you face, is what will God say to you when you leave this earth? Will he say to you what he says in Matthew 7? I never knew you. Depart from me. I don't want to hear those words. And so I'll risk whatever is necessary on this earth for God to say to me, welcome home.
Enter the joy of the Lord. And I think if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, you've been worried about what people think, you're concerned about the risk, the cost, I hope this greatest resurrection chapter is calling you from the shadows of your unbelief and your eat and drink mentality and your self-preoccupation. He's calling you to give your life away to the one who laid his life down for you. He is worth every risk. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.